Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. How are artificial intelligence technologies impacting political processes? And why will AI be critical and necessary infrastructure in 2024 and beyond? Welcome to Politics is Everything. I'm Kara ong Whaley, And I'm Eleanor Jenkins, a research assistant for the Center for Politics. Joining us this episode is Nathan Sanders, a data scientist and affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University, where he is focused on creating open technology to help vulnerable communities and all stakeholders participate in the analysis and development of public policy. His partner in AI research is Bruce Schneier, a fellow and lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me with you. You have warned that a greater threat than writing scripts or poetry is that AI could replace human humans through lobbying. I wonder if you can describe the different ways that artificial intelligence could be used to influence politics and how it will likely exacerbate existing inequities in political and decision-making processes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there are a set of very real risks around this, although I would say I see it less as AI replacing human lobbyists and more as human lobbyists using AI as a really, for them, valuable assistive technology that makes their work faster and more efficient. And I think that presents disruptive risks to our legislative system and our legislative processes. So the ways in which AI can do that are, I think, primarily two categories. One is that AI can create content. You know, of course, the, the interest of the last few months has been so focused on generative AI, uh, systems like large language models, LLMs like ChatGPT, that can automate the work that lobbyists would do in developing messaging and developing uh, email communications, even the text of uh, laws or legal arguments that they agree want the policymaker to, uh, to approve. Um, and that can be done much faster in an automated way using AI. The other is in terms of strategy and influence, uh, more specialized AI systems and predictive AI systems, uh, like those based around graph learning can automate strategy and legislative networks can analyze communication networks, identify patterns that actually help get that legislative content passed. And I think this presents potential for inequities. My expectation is that the wealthiest interests, the most powerful players in our existing system will be best able to take advantage of these two new technologies uh, as they are best positioned to take advantage of so many uh, new technologies. And that uh, because even if everyone can access AI technologies, even if we all have access to systems like ChatGPT, uh, it still requires human access. It still requires human financing for lobbyists to have their work be effective. And, and that's why I think uh, the entrenched interests are going to benefit most from uh, this assistive technology for lobbying. And you know, uh, I, I know one of the things that we plan to talk about is some work that we've done around what I think is the most near-term potential application of this type of tool, which is in micro-legislation. I wonder if I could just ask a follow-up because 
you are also a co-founder of the Maple Project that would allow uh, citizens to have more input into legislation that is being proposed specifically in the Massachusetts state legislature. And it's not just Massachusetts that has less than transparent <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, processes for legislation. I mean, it's it's nationwide here in Virginia. Um, you know, it, it can be very challenging. And we know that many bills are, are written by outside interests and then Legislate, legislators then just carry bills that have been written by specific interest groups. And, and you have co-founded and developed a system to try to increase access, voice, and participation that members of the public might have actually in that process. I wonder if you could talk about maybe some of the positive aspects of some of this open technology and, and if AI could be used in a positive way for, for citizen influence or the public's influence. Um, I'm using citizen in quotes, but public influence in in those processes. Absolutely. I, I thank you so much for bringing this up. So yes, I'm really fortunate to be part of the team that's creating Maple, which is the Massachusetts platform for legislative engagement. And we're focused on making it easier for constituents in Massachusetts to engage with their state legislature, and in particular, to help make it easier for people to submit written testimony about the bills that may become laws that affect their lives. Um, so I think there are lots of potentially beneficial assistive AI use cases for that testimony submission process for that legislative engagement system. So I'll give you just three examples. One is to help people actually uh, formulate and articulate their own thoughts. I think many of us have really enjoyed using systems like ChatGPT to bounce ideas off of, to refine our thinking, to ask for editing that we may not be able to um, do every time, you know, but do with a human every time uh, that we, we want to um, improve our ideas. Uh, the, uh, the, the second opportunity is with translation. So machine translation uh, between human languages has come so far and is so uh, widely accepted and effective now that we think it can help to break communication barriers that exist between, at least in Massachusetts, with what is entirely an English-speaking legislature that you know, uh, operates in English, expects testimony to be submitted in English, and a constituency that includes people who are, in many cases, not native English speakers, and you know, we're a state with a great diversity of languages spoken. So we'd like to automate the process using AI, people who are not native English speakers, to submit testimony and then be translated for legislators to read in English, and also for people who are not native English speakers to read and understand legislation that's being proposed and other people's thoughts in that legislation. And the third, which is most speculative, but maybe also most interesting, is just helping people understand the context and the content of legislation. In Massachusetts, like I'm sure most states, uh, has bills that will look like legalese to most people. Even for a lawyer, if you're not steeped in the section of the mass general laws that a bill is amending, uh, when you read the plain text of a bill, you may have really no idea what its impact is and why it's important. And in our initial experiments, we've been pretty impressed with how well LLMs can combine knowledge from their training about the existing mass general laws with context provided in a prompt about the content of the bill and other information that we, we may add about from the purporting about, about a bill and turn that into a readable summary. And the thing that's exciting about AI is that it can then also personalize to an individual. You, know, you can ask a follow-up question and say, okay, I understand in general what the impact of this bill is, but what does it mean for me as a resident of the city? Or what does it mean for me as you know, a young woman seeking medical care or whatever my situation may be? And that's something that just can't be achieved at scale with human interaction. There just aren't enough of us to answer those questions for every constituent. We think that could be really valuable uh, with all the caveats that you would expect around 
how effective these LLMs actually are, if they're maybe biased in the training, they give incorrect answers or hallucinate. So we want to fully explore those potential risks before we add a feature like that to our platform. But we're really excited about the potential. Sort of going back to, you know, beyond just like aggregating preferences or being able to like give people a platform to express them, um, it just, it made me think about in 2016, you know, the whole debacle with Cambridge Analytica and using those like machine learning AI algorithms to create this really personalized lobbying in ways that people don't even understand is happening to them in the first place. Um, so, you know, and what, I know you talked to about like caveats with making sure that this functions properly and ethically. Um, what do you think needs to be in place to make sure that, you know, those benefits to these new AI systems aren't then also causing these risks that we saw with Cambridge Analytica? Oh, it's a great question. I think there's so many angles to take on that. Um, I think the first thing I want to say is about uh, the potential applications of AI, the current generation of large language models in particular, in campaigns. Now, uh, so when, when you talk about the Cambridge Analytica example, that's really what I think of, of how individual, uh, individuals do that and individual voter interactions can be leveraged to benefit the campaign. And here again, I think there are both really maybe uh, beneficial, inspiring use cases for AI and also this that we should be concerned about. So I'll start with the inspiring part. You know, imagine that you're trying to understand a slate of candidates uh, for the presidency or maybe just a local position. And our, uh, the current situation may be that they each have a website which kind of speaks in vague generalities and it's kind of hard to understand. And, you know, you're kind of out of to you and your preferences in your situation. Uh, and then imagine a future where each of these candidates, it's just a platform in the form an AI chatbot that you can ask questions at, that you can ask how their platform relates to your case, how a candidate re would react to a situation that's particular to you. Uh, you can ask them a question that no one's asked them before and get an extrapolation of their thinking. Again, we, we would want to be sure that these types of systems work well enough to really give you a legitimate answer that reflects what the candidate would say. And if we can advance the technology to the point where it does, what an amazing informational tool for a voter. That could be really exciting. Of course, there are big risks in that as well. And one of the risks that we've written about is the idea of an AI demagogue. A demagogue sort of manipulates the emotional state of a voter, basically says what they want to hear in order to win their vote, regardless of what they actually think or will do. And uh, the current generation of LLMs, I think, is almost designed to do that. You know, they're, they're based on predicting the probability of the next expected word of the reader, essentially. And that means they're almost designed to spit out what you want to hear. I think the way that we can best hold campaign chatbots, campaign AI accountable for that is, again, transparency. So if we can establish a record of what the campaign is saying to each voter and make sure it's consistent and make sure that the candidate is held accountable to that, that's how we can best mitigate that risk. And I think that's very plausible. In the future, where all of us are having individualized conversations with the candidates through an AI, uh, it may... It, it, the scale of that is huge. It may seem difficult that we can could cross-reference what the candidate is saying to each person. But there's already a precedent for this. There are already sites like ShareGPT that have sprung up organically, where people are just opting in to share chatbot conversations and transcripts. And so I think we, we certainly could build a system like that for campaigns, and we could use that as a, a data set to provide more transparency into how candidates are campaigning and to hold those candidates accountable as they take policy decisions. I want to follow up on, you know, how do we get a new regulatory regime that can provide accountability and 
um, you know, transparency is one thing, but it, transparency doesn't always lead to accountability. <laughs> um, and and even if we had access to be able to compare what they were saying, what what elected officials are saying or non-elected officials are saying, um, it can still be really challenging to hold those elected officials accountable um, or non-elected officials accountable as well. You know, we know that there's some efforts in Congress to you know, to, to think about how we sort of regulate this new space, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York uh, is circulating some sort is, is circulating a, a broad framework um, for regulating for a new regulatory regime for artificial intelligence. Um, and Representative Clark of New York um, also introduced legislation to require um, uh, disclosure in, in campaign ads specifically uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. But what do you think legislators, policymakers need to consider in a regulatory regime, um, especially given how quickly technology is is changing? Um, and, and what kind of questions might guide a, a regulatory framework to ensure that there is accountability? A great set of questions. I think uh, first thing I would say is that a regulatory regime, I think, is best targeted in a way that's activity-based rather than entity-based. And what I mean by that is we could try and develop regulations uh, for our democratic processes that are specifically responsive to the concerns of AI, treating AI as an entity that is different from humans that are entities interacting with the process. And I think that's actually not the way to go. The alternative to that is an activity-based regulation scheme where we regulate activities in democratic space in a similar way, regardless of whether they're human entities or AI entities. And to me, that makes more sense. So that the way that um, we've written about this is to say that we don't need to reinvent our democracy to save it from AI. Instead, we need to follow the types of good governance principles and reforms that people have long advocated for a long time before tools like ChatGPT came onto the market. So let me give you some specific examples. I think if we're concerned, for example, about uh, the use of AI in lobbying, that speaks to me, the need to strengthen things like uh, lobbying disclosure requirements, campaign finance reforms that would limit the efficacy of money in campaign finance and the influence that lobbyists have through campaign finance. And that is effective, whether it's an AI-assisted lobbyist or a purely human lobbyist without AI-assisted tool. I think in so much of the public discussion about AI regulation that's happened in the last few weeks, many people are pointing to or are arriving at the conclusion that it's really difficult to put your finger on what's what's wrong with uh, treating AI model yeah. or what's dangerous about the um, activity because it's AI assisted. And so to me, that leads to this conclusion that we, we do need to regulate the activity, um, even if we can't in a robust or straightforward way, regulate the entity of treating AI as different from a human actor. I think there's also uh, a need to look beyond just a regulatory solution. I think that if, you know, if we believe in things like effective lobbying disclosure, regulation, and campaign finance, regulation, uh, investing more in enforcement to make sure that we're getting the benefits of those activity-based regulations is part of how we can respond to the increased risks associated with AI assistance. And we should also uplift those uh, beneficial, positive public uses of AI that we talked about earlier. In particular, when it comes to lobbying, if, if you have a concern, as I do, that corporations are really going to benefit from AI-assisted tools to become more effective lobbyists, how can we make it so that individuals who don't exploit those tools in the same way, we're also uplifted. 
how can we make sure that an individual's voice has larger weight in a legislative process when they're competing against a corporation that is now supercharged by the capabilities of AI? Now, I do think AI can be useful to those individuals in the ways we've talked about by helping them articulate their thoughts or by helping them translate into the language that their legislators speak, et cetera. So one of the concerns I have in the absence of any sort of regulatory regime or codes of ethics around AI use, um, uh, AI development, codes of ethics around AI development even. Um, I've talked to some computer scientists um, who, computer science professors who are training the next generation. And one of the things that has been, that she mentioned that has been challenging is that, you know, developers are given just small pieces of the puzzle and often don't see how it's connected. So it's much easier to shirk responsibility for the negative uses of a product that's developed because they don't see what they're developing as part of a whole. It's just a very narrow um, uh, piece of, of, of software or of coding that, that they're working on. Um, so I want to ask one about, you know, are there ethics or is there a code of ethics that that might be developed or is being developed that you already know of, um, you know, for developers specifically, um, but then also for individual for individuals, um, you know, I. I, I've seen some of the AI political ads specifically that have come out, and some are super obvious. You know, the Republican National Committee, the Republican National Committee, when they released their first AI-generated um, political campaign ad, labeled it as such. Um, you know, there have been uh, the Daily Show released an AI Biden ad. You know, there there are some there there are some ads that are like clearly labeled, but this idea that we're just going to like leave it to individuals to be able to discern or report, like I, I just I I'm trying to wrap my head around how we. Can can truly get oversight and and how much is going to be left to individuals to critically engage with a piece of political content and know whether something is a deep fake. I just, I, I find that one of the bigger challenges that we'll face, at least in the short term, until there there are some sort of norms and ethics in place to, to guide us. Great questions. I'd love to, to first take note question about deep fakes and then come back to the question about uh, codes of ethics. Uh, so I, I I think it will become increasingly hard to determine if an image or a soundbite or a video is authentic or not. And I think it's actually not so different than the way things were a decade ago, long before AI technologies were at anywhere near the state they are today. Uh, I think uh, we were all sort of desensitized to the idea that a photo is necessarily authentic. When Photoshop became very common and in the hands of everybody. And now the same thing is happening for video and audio. Um, but there's a long history of modifications of those uh, media that predates AI. And so I would look to how we successfully counter the kind of misinformation in the past um, to how we'll do it in the future as well. Because I think that nearly trying to detect if something is AI generated or not is going to not be a successful strategy. What we've seen so far is that already generative AI tools in both the text and image domain have gotten so good that it's really very hard for a human expert uh, or a machine detection tool to be able to figure out from AI or not. Uh, and that's only going to get harder. Uh, on the other hand, we have social systems that we can use to validate information in many cases. So, you know, for example, there was that video um, speaker Pelosi that was famously altered to make it look like she was slurring. And that was pretty, pretty forward, I think, 
uh, for journalists and others connected to people who are actually in the room for those for when that, those recordings were made to be able to verify whether or not that happened the way it appeared to be. They'd be able to turn the future too, uh, undermining faith in institutions, undermining faith in journalists, uh, means that maybe fewer people in the future will trust that kind of verification. But I hope we can make progress on that issue, and I hope we can rely on institutions and social systems to help us validate that kind of information. Now, there is a place where, of course, this would still fail, which is for private communications. You know, we've had leaked audio from um, donor events or individual private things, and those can still be very politically explosive and you know, really valuable from a transparency standpoint. So people really understand what a candidate or politician is saying or doing. You know, I think that'll be increasingly hard to verify and increasingly easier for candidates to say, oh, that's a deep fake that didn't really happen. That's a real problem. And so my, my thought about this is that we really need a multi-pronged strategy. Uh, we, and my, my primary concern is that we have stronger democratic protections that apply across all entities, whether they're AI or humans. So we've talked about examples like strengthening campaign finance reform. I think that's a fundamental protection, which will make us less exposed to risks associated with AI, whether or not that AI is developed ethically, at least in terms of democratic processes. Uh, but I think codes of ethics are very important. I think we need to have stronger professional associations and stronger systems of standards for engineers and AI researchers, which exists in many other fields like law and medicine, but really aren't well developed in AI and data science yet. I hope they will be over time. I think we also need government support for an AI ecosystem that extends beyond big tech. I hope that we don't have to rely on a small handful of tech giants to develop and enforce these types of ethics codes because they're the only ones that have the capability to develop advanced AI systems. I think we've seen an enormous amount of innovation in the public sphere in the open source community or in AI models in recent weeks that demonstrates that more than just big tech companies are capable of advancing the state of the art in this field. And with public support, with government support and policy around that development, I think we can enforce a foundation that allows everyone to participate in AI development and avoid it being concentrated in an oligopoly of companies. And then lastly, I do think we need regulation in AI. I think we need rules that strictly enforce certain ethical principles, but I would expect this to always be slow and unresponsive to the latest technological advances, which are clearly happening in the pace that's far faster than the legislative process and far faster than the regulatory process. I think that'll continue to be the case. I know that you are talking about um, regulating based on activity. So being able to pick up on when there's, you know, like malicious activity or activity that's not accurate to say like a given candidate, if it's someone's lobbying and regulating based on that, was is that correct? Uh, well, when I, when I talk about the difference between entity-based and activity-based regulation, I'm really talking about setting a common standard that exists for everybody, whether they're using AI assistance or not. Um, so, uh, the example I keep coming back to is lobbying disclosure. If a lobbyist is required to say if they contacted a legislative office to lobby in favor or against a bill, that rule should be strong and it should apply to a lobbyist whether they are using AI assistance or not. It should apply to a lobbyist whether they're part of a huge firm that's lobbying every legislative office in the House of Senate uh, or a small individual lobbyist who's focused on one issue. So I think my general concern is, I know that one of the main reasons you mentioned that AI can be so beneficial is that you can have it operate on a scale that's way larger than any, you know, human run model could, you know, that it can operate much more robustly, much more, you know, on a much larger scale. So I think, I guess my concern is that, you know, if 
for anyone, regardless of if they're, you know, a human or an AI lobbyist, if it's operating on such a massive scale, and like, as you said, like those like regulatory structures are going to be moving at a much slower rate, you know, how can we keep up with that or prevent these consequences from starting to snowball before we even become aware of them? A great, really important question. I think I have two thoughts on that. Uh, one is that I think we can't necessarily rely on our processes to keep up. Um, but we want them to be a uh, source of accountability retroactively, as all of our laws are. So if an AI assisted lobbyist fails to make a disclosure to continue that earlier example, we should be able to hold them accountable to that. Uh, if they have used AI assistance to lobby every member of the House of Representatives and Senate, and also uh, every member of both chambers of every state in the union, uh, we should be able to apply disclosure requirements to them, make sure that it's possible to identify that coordinated lobbying campaign and the effects that we've had on our legislation across the country. The very reason this AI is being deployed is because it can operate on a much more robust and much more widespread scale than any human-operated model could. So when then trying to keep up with regulating, you know, those activities, how can we possibly keep up with it, you know, when, you know, the very reason we're deploying it is because we can't operate on such a large scale? I think AI can also assist our government assists, assists public administration so that it is better able to keep up. I think there are really interesting potential use cases for AI in enforcement. And uh, I know that part of the investment that the European Union, the European Commission has made in AI has been directed specifically towards advancing public administration. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of concerns in doing that. We want to make sure it's being used in a publicly beneficial way. We want to be assured that it's operating in the principles in line with our, our in, in the U.S. context with our Bill of Rights, for example. Um, and a salient example is that there's a lot of, I think, valid concern about the use of uh, AI-based facial detection technology in policing. And so that's a, a good example of how this can be applied to potentially negative use. But in general, I think AI assistance can support enforcement of our law just as much as it may assist people who are trying to subvert. Yeah, that you started to touch on a point that I also wanted to raise um, if you're willing, and, and that is this question of the intersection between the rise of the surveillance state and the advancement of AI and, you know, whether or not, you know, how that might particularly impact vulnerable communities. Permit me just a minute. I'm looking back now at the White House's uh, AI Bill of Rights that OSDP put out. I think they have a point that I that I like that's responsive to this. These seem like great aspirations, but given what we know from different sets of leaked documents about data that is collected on individuals and then how it ends up being used against them, it's hard for me to it's hard to it's hard for me to imagine that people will be protected, especially with like the Patriot Act, for example, um, and being able to justify uses based on national security or protection against domestic terrorism, right? As soon as we get into that national security space, um, it becomes increasingly difficult to have that accountability and transparency, even from government and especially from government. These, this is a great statement from the White House, but like in practice, you know, I, I find it hard to achieve. Red, it's so well said, and I would agree with you. Uh, so the uh, White House Office of Science Technology Policy, OCP, has put out a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. I do think it has some encouraging uh, principles in it around the opportunity or the right to avoid discrimination by AI systems, 
I think this is often framed in terms of being able to opt out of decision-making processes that are led by AI and opting into human-oriented decision-making processes, having transparency around AI decision-making and validation that AI decision-making processes are not biased. Uh, opportunities to opt out of tracking as European privacy legislation, GDPR has established, I think are all helpful. But I completely agree with you that even if all of that is in place in the US and it's not yet, we should be skeptical of it. And I think we all need to increasingly learn how to interact with AI with the understanding that that very interaction is actually capturing data. So in the you know, context of surveillance, we often think of this as video recording. You know, you walk in public space these days and you understand that you're probably being captured on home circuit cameras and that may have implications for, um, uh, for how you act. I think the same is true in the online space. I think many of us now have a good understanding that when we search using a tool like Google, that what we're searching for can become a record that at least one company has access to. Uh, when we use AI chatbots, we should think of it in the same way that the questions that we ask and how we interact with that chatbot maybe revealing things about us, both obvious and non-obvious. Now, if we ask it a question about X, well, we know now it knows about, we have an interest in X. But also if we respond with a follow-up question, uh, it could be able or later analysts of that data may be able to infer things about us that are non-obvious. Uh, the example of front of earlier of Cambridge Analytica, that's exactly what Cambridge Analytica was seeking to do. They wanted to do psychometric behavioral profiling on people based on their interactions with Facebook systems profiles they like, which celebrities they look at, things like that. Um, I think the Cambridge Analytica version of that is very primitive uh, compared to what may be possible in the future. And if AI chatbots continue to just just they've been on and just amassing enormous user engagement, uh, it could become a primarily primary tool that we use to interact with the digital world or the world in general in the near future. And we should think of it as a primary way that lose our privacy and expose information about ourselves. As I'm like listening to this, my the concern that's popping up in my mind is that if, you know, protections from, you know, these discriminations, at least as it stands now, is based on a binary opt-in, opt-out, I wonder if that in and of itself creates an asymmetry. Like if I'm somewhat, like I speak English, so I don't have to rely on a translation to read like a document from, you know, a legislator or have that like conversation or dialogue somehow, you know, but if I speak, you know, like a given a specific dialect that people aren't translating in, then I really do rely on that information. So if I opt out, I lose a lot of really valuable information, you know, that other people wouldn't need AI at all for. So I guess my concern is that, you know, do you think that if, you know, those safeties and protections rely on just fully opting out, you know, to what extent does that in and of itself create inequality mm. if that becomes more and more integrated into our political system and our social structures. I think it's such an insightful point and I totally agree with you. I think it's unrealistic to think of any of us having a binary choice of whether to interact with AI or not, because I, I think arguably today already, and certainly in the near future, AI will be critical infrastructure in the same way that the roads were generations ago, in the same way that the internet has become in recent years. Uh, I think AI will be critical infrastructure and necessary for participating in the economy of the, the 21st century, maybe even the economy of 2024. Uh, so there are opportunities for us to reduce inequity in a system where everyone needs to access the AI to participate in the economy. Uh, in particular, I think it's really important that we have what we've been calling an AI public option, which are AI systems that are supported by the government, provide foundational access to AI services that isn't intermediated by any particular company or private entity. 
that gives businesses, nonprofits, individuals a foundation to build on so that innovators, entrepreneurs uh, compete with large tech, tech giants in developing AI capabilities. But it also gives any individual who wants to have access to an AI system that's developed with political oversight, with public policy guidance from elected leadership, an opportunity to use that system instead of one that's developed in a closed, non-transparent uh, private system where they may not have that level of transparency or uh, any level of guarantees necessarily about the ethical development of products. Well, Nathan Sanders, we appreciate your time and, and sharing your expertise. There are certainly both promise and perils involved in artificial intelligence. Um, and we are grateful for the research that you're that you are doing and continue to do as well as the practical application and ensuring that there is greater voice access and participation in positive ways in our democracy through artificial intelligence technologies. Listeners, you can read uh, several of the articles that Nathan has recently written in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.